0: Listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 280. I'm your host, András Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Hey, son,
1: hey,
0: hey, hey, András, you're back! Yes, I'm back! From Madeira. Good. How was it? Of all places, it was amazing. Madeira is always beautiful. I, I love that never place. Never been there. Never been there. Not well, me either. <laughs> with, with so many mountains, I mean, the whole island is a big mountain that grew out of the sea, the ocean, actually. It looks looks very never... beautiful on the pictures. Yeah, it, it was. And I'm very happy to report that uh, both my pictures and my call for sceptics on the island to meet me were not in vain. Good. I actually managed to meet up with the Elder, who's a local, who moved to the island a couple of years ago with his wife and family. And he's a skeptic and he found us somehow. He couldn't actually say how he found us, but somehow uh, looking for skeptical podcasts. And he's been listening to us for a while. He happened to stumble on my call for people living on the island wanting to meet me. Oh, good. And then he saw my photos on Instagram and assumed that I was still on the island because of that and wrote me an email. And we ended up meeting so we had a lovely chat for about two or three hours and uh, we agreed that uh, if and when I'm going back on the island, we would probably do this again. And I encouraged him to, to try and find others. So anyone listening who knows someone living on Madeira, who's a skeptic or, or trying to find their ways, please get in touch with us because I, I want to connect you with Elder. He's eager to find like-minded people who live on the island. Yeah, he says that his experience with the locals is not very good in terms of skepticism, so let's let's help him out, <laughs> shall we? Let's build a
2: skeptical bridge over to Madeira. It will be a long one, exactly. but uh, we'll it's do it. It's
0: gonna be a long one. It's it's easier to build a a, a bridge to Africa actually than to Europe. But uh, <laughs> who cares? Yeah, who cares? It's who cares? A long one. That's just geography. <laughs> good. Okay. Okay. So it's awesome i, I th- this is why I make these calls, so I don't re- don't know if you guys remember, but uh, many, many years ago, I put out a call on Twitter when I was in Canada, and someone answered, and we've been meeting up every time I'm in Canada ever since, not in the last two years, unfortunately, and this year I'm not going to Canada, which is a shame, but, but I still, think
1: I remember hearing about that, yeah mm-hmm.
0: yeah. And they are awesome people, and I'm so happy that I did that, and, and I managed to meet up with them. So I'll keep doing that wherever I go. <laughs> Very good.
1: Very good, yes.
0: How are you guys? So what happened to you? I l- really liked the
2: episode. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. We've Thank been uh, fine, I think. But I've We've had a, a, an encounter with uh, what we thought was the plague here uh, at mm-hmm. the Berkman headquarters. Oh. My son, Leo, was uh, pretty ill and he's still not quite recovered, uh, but it wasn't COVID. It was something else. Apparently, we found out yesterday that we got the tests back and uh, mm-hmm. it's, he, he was negative, negative for that. So You dodged
1: um, the bullet. <laughs> yeah,
2: somehow. But it, it was all the classical symptoms that you would expect. So we, okay. I was surprised. I thought it was, this is COVID, if, if there is you know, one. You know, a couple of people
0: among my acquaintances and friends and family, they have reported going through things like just a common cold yeah. that they they haven't experienced for for more than a year because they were not contacting people and now that we are getting back there, the usual illnesses will surely come back.
1: Yeah, but I have to say I'd much rather have some, small illnesses than not socializing <laughs> and i would never i never thought i would say that <laughs>
2: but it is worth it is it is yes, worth
1: it the occasional cold yeah but
0: don't forget that this is the way of thinking of many many people who deny yes. the severity yes. of uh, covid because they claim that it's basically just a common cold or not yeah. more severe than that mm. they're they're wrong
1: <laughs> and also what i would like to add is that i probably or not probably i will Continue wearing masks in shops, for example. Although, mm-hmm. like, even if I don't have to anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's just the right thing to do. Yeah. Oh, by the way, Onika, yes. I wanted to thank you for bashing Orbán. <laughs>
1: <Yes. week.
0: laughs> in my in my absence, uh, well, I really appreciated it, and uh, this shows pretty well that these news go way beyond our borders. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That and was I feel actually... so ashamed. <laughs> Coming back to to exactly that news item, there's actually like right now a bit of a rainbow flood in Germany happening.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. Very in Munich?
1: Yeah, exactly. They wanted to um, they wanted the Allianz Arena, so like the stadium, mm-hmm. to be illuminated in rainbow colors, but the UEFA mm-hmm. said no. So everyone is protesting now with rainbow flags. So yeah, <laughs> it's it's very <laughs> interesting. <laughs>
0: I really love that. Unfortunately, the problem with that piece of legislation that you mentioned and everyone is so upset about around the world, actually, not only in Europe, it's that basically one of his ways of of his government's ways of drawing everyone's attention from the real thing happening in the background. Yeah. Which is now, currently, I don't know if you've heard, but he's tying up the knots with the the Chinese the the Chinese government, and uh, Mm. they have passed legislation that will allow the government to get a loan from the Chinese government to build up a local campus of uh, Fudan University, which is one of the top Chinese universities, controlled by the Chinese government, the Chinese state, build a campus using Chinese money that we get as a loan from the Chinese government. Mm. We are talking... Hundreds of millions of euros. It's just madness. And no one is talking about that because he threw that bone to the community that follows the the opposition parties. This is the way to control. Mm. Divide et impera.
1: It reminds me also a bit of what um, Donald Trump sometimes did or was, was pretty much a master of. when he wanted to distract the media from certain things, he just started a fire somewhere else, you know.
0: Yeah, I always wonder whether it comes from the heads of the, out of the heads of those guys or, or some brainy guy from the background is controlling all that. But I don't want to. I don't want to go down that rabbit <laughs> hole of, of building up conspiracy theories.
1: I'm pretty so, sure they all have like an evil, evil dictator handbook somewhere <laughs> written yeah, by the yeah, same that's guy. Right. That's right. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, there there is one. <laughs> it's it's titled Mein Kampf, and uh, a lot of a lot of people do use it. I'm afraid. But before we go deeper into all that shit, uh, what do you, what do you say we crack on with the show?
1: Yes, <laughs> Let's please. Let's do
0: that. And uh, what better way to do that than finding out what's really special about this week in Skepticism.
1: Yeah, and this week I'm talking about not the birthday of someone, but the death day. (laughs) Because the person I'm talking about was born on the 14th of June 1868, but he died on the 26th of June 1943. Mm-hmm. And the person I'm talking about is an Austrian called Karl Landsteiner. And he was an Austrian biologist, physician, and immunologist. Why is that so important, you might ask? And he distinguished the main blood groups in um, 1900. And he identified the agglutinants in blood. He also...
0: I know his name sounded familiar.
1: Yeah. Okay, I knew <laughs> He's it. He's a very cool person. He also identified the rhesus factor... And Mm -hmm. discovered the polio virus in 1909. Wow. So pretty, pretty prolific. (laughs) He grew up in a Jewish family and studied in Würzburg, Munich and Zurich. And worked in Vienna after that as an assistant to Max von Gruber at the Hygienic Institute in Vienna. At um, this point of time, it was also Austrian-Hungary, I would like to add.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah. Suddenly, suddenly, I feel excluded from the show here now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he also, yeah, he identified the main blood groups A, B, AB, and O, and O he called Z. So he pretty much uh, discovered A, B, and C. With his work, the first successful blood transfusion was possible in 1907, and he also discovered that there are um, universal recipients AB. And universal donors, and that's O negative. Everyone can receive blood from someone who has O And AB can receive from everyone else. Um, which means that we need people from, especially from O negative, to don- donate blood. Because A, they can give it to anyone, else, everyone else. Plus, O negative people can only receive blood from O negative people. <laughs> yeah. So okay. we definitely need, need especially that.
0: Just to be clear, we need all of them. I we mean, need because, all blood, because yeah. people need blood transfusions, yes. it's always something that they try to get from their own blood type. Yes. Yeah. So this is why at these um, donation centers they always emphasize that. But because it's not the the most frequent in the population, uh, the the others are badly needed as well.
1: Yes. Every half liter <laughs> helps.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Every drop I would like to add, but yeah, they don't take drops. They take half a liter usually. <laughs> yeah, so but back to Karl Landsteiner. He moved to the Netherlands after the um, First World War and then to the US because he moved because he thought, hmm, Austria is in bad repair, in a bad state. Let's move to the Netherlands, to the Hague. It wasn't much better there, so then he moved to the US as I already said, died in 1943. He received several awards for his work, very well-deserved. And, of course, he saved countless lives with his work. So he's a bit of a hero of medical science and, and also of, of skepticism because of that. Mm-hmm. And because he worked with, with blood so much, I also had to think a bit about um, skeptical topics, um around blood. And then of course I stumbled over bloodletting.
2: Oh and vampires and
1: probably. Uh, vampires, of course. <laughs> but no, did you know that bloodletting is still used in uh some alternative medicine forms?
2: I didn't know, but I'm not surprised. Everything yeah. goes on in uh, alt yeah. med so circles.
1: It was a medical in Accords practice in uh in ancient times in the Middle Ages and also even in the nineteenth century. But we know now that it's um, not effective, except for like very, very specific things. But usually it's not effective, but even harmful. <laughs> so mm. it's it's definitely an, a practice that shouldn't be done unless someone who studied it recommends it because you have this and that condition. Apart from that, it's not a it's not good thing. And I'm pretty sure Karl-Ansteiner also wasn't a fan of bloodletting, <laughs> so... I can't say happy birthday, I don't want to say happy death day, but yeah, let's remember Karl Landsteiner today. (laughs) (laughs) All right,
0: thank you very much, Annika. Thank you. Yeah, from uh, Austria, let's go see what the Pope is doing in the Vatican. So Pontus, do you have something to poke the Pope for?
2: Yes, I do, Uh, especially in homophobia news this week. You don't say for the first time ever since settling the relationship between italy and the vatican as as separate countries which was done in uh, 1929 the vatican has now issued a quote nota verbale end quote to express concerns with italian legislation so the the old agreement between italy and the vatican was that the vatican has formally a say or can have an opinion about internal legislations going on in Italy because it concerns the Vatican as well because they're almost the same country and they can't be avoided. They've never done that, but now they've um, now they have uh, sent this nota verbale. The foreign minister of the Vatican, a British archbishop called Paul Gallagher has handed over a letter to the Italian ambassador Pietro Sebastiani. The letter is concerned with a new proposed Italian bill which features measures to prevent hate crimes based on motives linked to a person's sex, sexual orientation or gender identity. So this bill would make such acts, quote, an aggravating factor in felonies, end quote, in the same way that racism already is. And this is what Francis wants to stop because he is afraid that such a law would open up for legal actions towards Catholic schools in Italy. So, they have never exercised their right to discuss internal Italian law before, not even under Mussolini, the Second World War, whatever, but this was a bridge too far, banning discriminative teachings against the LGBT community. And do you still think he is the progressive pope? Not so much. Yeah, he's progressive. He's doing something that has
0: never done before. Uh, Okay. Isn't that progress?
1: (laughs) On a spectrum of popes, he's progressive. But Uh, on a spectrum of normal people, not so much.
2: Yeah, (laughs) I I think that's quite astounding, actually, that that this is what they want to protest. But it's all about protecting the Catholic schools in Italy. And that says something about what they are teaching in those Catholic schools, of course. Yeah. So so that's the big... uh, poking, I think, for that part. But then I want to mention two more things uh, about uh, the Vatican and the Catholic Church, just because it's been misreported in the media so much. And I want to set things straight. There are three priests in Umbria, which is north of Rome, isn't it, Andras? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There are three, three priests there that have uh, resigned because they wanted to get married. So it's a bit of a, what? Everybody's uh, leaving the, the church to get married. And that has set along a lot of speculation in, in motion about maybe this will push Frankie to reconsider the idea of married priests. Because that came up uh, during the synod of the Amazon. but And this synod was two years ago, and uh, we never really got his final word on the idea, except that he wasn't going to talk so much about it. So so people are speculating that maybe now he's going to take a stand and, and change this and allow uh, priests to be married. But it, I can tell you, I'm looking into my crystal ball here, and I'm saying it's not going to happen at all. The Amazon is totally di- a totally different thing, and uh, the Pope and uh, the Catholic Church is really against the married priests that it came up in the Amazon was because it's very hard to find uh, uh, men because we're not talking about female priests but, but it's very hard to to find men who are willing to live in celibacy because it's so against well not just their culture but everybody's <laughs> nature I, I would say and that's where they the, the idea came up but it's not gonna never gonna apply to Italy I'm I'm sure. The other thing that is also misreported is that there's so many, many rumors around that the U.S. bishops, they have a big bishops meeting there at the moment. And the rumor is that they are considering banning Joe Biden from getting the communion because he is openly pro-abortion rights. And they do have a bishops meeting going on and they have also decided to write a paper on the communion clarifying things in one way or another. And this paper will be presented in November, I think. But this paper is not about banning Biden from from getting the communion. It's about clarifying the rules and what the communion really is and to make sure that people do not forget that it is actually the flesh of Jesus that they are munching on 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 Sundays there. Things like that. Um, They are not going to ban um, President Biden or anybody else from from taking the, the Eucharist. So just want to set things straight there. So he's um, allowed to be a cannibal. He's allowed to be a cannibal, uh, even if he's uh, also pro-abortion rights. And No, I mean, they, were, they are so happy. This is only the second ever Catholic uh, president of the U.S. They are not going to ban him from their services. That would be ridiculous.
1: Scotty asked me a question in regards to Holy Communions last week that I found really funny. And that was, what do you think, how many Holy Communions would you have to go to, to eat a whole Jesus?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think that's a very good question. I think that (laughs) is a question with an accurate mathematical answer. I don't have that answer, but I'm sure it can be calculated. (laughs) You know, the only
0: reason why I really regret not having to, uh, having had to go through catechism as a child Mm. is that I couldn't ask those kinds of kinds of questions. Um, (laughs) That would be fun, yeah. Yeah, it would have been.
1: (laughs) Or not, depending on like how old you are and who your parents are. Yeah,
2: but you know, questions like that, you know, what part of Jesus is this? I mean, I'm okay if it's, maybe it's a little bit of his shoulder or something, but if it's more of the intimate parts, I don't want it. (laughs) Quite. All right. Thank you very much, Pontus,
0: for poking the Pope once again. Thank you. That means we are moving on to the news. And I'd like to start with something that is definitely COVID-related. And I'm afraid we've seen a couple of very disheartening developments of of how COVID is being treated by the general public. And some big movements are growing up as we speak, including those of the anti-vax people and those who deny the whole COVID situation and the pandemic itself. It's one thing to spread misinformation about all that. But when we start attacking the people who report on what's going on and what the government's decisions are, that's when we are getting really into trouble. That means that we are facing an actual social movement that is really disturbing to see. This is what happened to one of the political editors at BBC, specifically that of the, the show Newsnight, by the name Nicholas Watt, and there were there was demonstration outside of Downing Street a couple of days ago, that obviously the BBC reported of, and then the protesters found Nicholas Watt and started shouting pretty bad things at him, like calling him a traitor and a liar and all that kind of stuff, but it didn't stop there afterwards there was some online trolling emerging out of all that including calls on telegram and especially the followers among the followers of uh, british conspiracy theorist paul joseph watson there were calls to kill him and and hang him and i, I don't want to list all the things that they wanted to do do to him But this is not the only and not the first reporting of journalists being harassed and attacked for reporting on what's going on with the COVID situation. Well, there are several spokespeople of different organisations, one of them is Tech Against Terrorism, and uh, the other one is uh, the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, which we mentioned already on this show, that they spoke out against that. But they also mentioned the fact that this is very disturbing, because this means that, especially with these movements teaming up with the far right, the political far right, and becoming violent this will be a situation that is increasingly difficult to control. When someone asks skeptics what the harm is about people get away with uh, spreading misinformation and falsehoods, this is what the harm is. This is where it can lead to. And I'm not in favor of uh, applying slippery slope argue, uh, sort of arguments, but when we start seeing the signs... We need to recognise them, and we need to act accordingly. This is why it's increasingly important to have fact-checkers and communicators who are willing to convey the message of COVID in a way that separates them from official sources, because, well, there is a certain level of distrust against official sources, and we need to address that issue. Depressive enough to start with? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay.
1: Talking about press, there was uh, an interesting development this week and last week um, because I stumbled ob- over a few news items and I actually, my, my skeptical senses didn't tingle that much. So that was very interesting to for me to also encounter because I saw news items like... The World Health Organization wants to ban all women aged 18 to 50 from drinking alcohol. Or the World Health Organization plans to stop women of childbearing age from drinking alcohol. That would be completely disproportionate, as critics say. And the drinks industry come slammed the proposal for being sexist. Yes, mm-hmm. of course, that would be absolutely sexist, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, and here's like where I have to say, I found it really interesting that I fell into the trap. The World Health Organization never did that. Ah. The report they published. Surprisingly. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. The report they published says, appropriate attention should be given to prevention of drinking among pregnant women and women of childbearing age. That's it. So no ban on alcohol, but what they want to do is raise awareness um, with campaigns they want to restrict alcohol availability for young teenagers mm-hmm. and, and want to ban alcohol advertisement, but they definitely want don't want to like recommend abstinence. They want to raise awareness of the serious consequences of pregnant women drinking alcohol. But their intention and their language got really misinterpreted by the press, and this is really an interesting example on how quickly misinformation can spread.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah. And there's one thing that we, it's its a very common misinf- piece of misinformation about WHO. And we have to make that clear once and for all. The WHO is not an authority. They cannot ban stuff. They can yeah. recommend banning stuff. It's a massive difference. I mean, they're a professional body of health experts and... They make recommendations, and that's basically all, which is very important. And and they organize projects, but this is what they do. They they're not a legislative body.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. All right, I have some good news, and um, we need it finally. Yes, yes. So uh, our friend and champion against scam, that so-called alternative medicine, Edsard Ernst, he has written an update on the situation of homeopathy in France, and I thought it was time that we revisit the subject I think we last mentioned it in maybe was 2019, two years ago what happened then after years of debate uh, was that the French academies of medicine and pharmacy declared that French universities should no longer include any courses in homeopathy because shocker it doesn't work after Uh 200 years of trying nobody has been able to one come up with a plausible explanation on how water that once had something in it but no longer has anything in it can have any effect and uh, two no um, well-conducted double-blind and repeated studies has shown any effect beyond the placebo effect so it cannot work and it doesn't work and uh, that's basically all you should need to know so after that decision by the faculties, uh, the French health minister, Agnès Bysyn, and please correct us if if I'm wrong now, <laughs> send us in the, the proper pronunciation, but she declared that uh, she accepted their assessment and uh, it was decided uh, to phase out public funding of homeopathic products in France. So that's what we've reported on before. Then after this, in March 2020, Boiron, who is the largest manufacturer of a homeopathy in, in France, and I believe in Europe, they began a reconstruction of the company that led to the loss of almost 600 jobs and the closing down of one third of their 31 production and distribution sites. The public funding has now, in 2021, been phased out. And as of first of January this year. No homeopathy in France is funded by public uh, means. So this is good news. We see that uh, homeopathy is really being phased out in France. Of course you can still pay for it out of your own money but if people see... There's two effects here I think. First of all if it's free or free, but if it's subsidized uh, like any other medicine, then of course you can, you, you continue co- to use it because it's, it's free or, or subsidized. But also, when it is subsidized, it gets an official status. You think, well, since the, the government is paying for this, it must be working. But when those things go away, Uh, Also, the private uh, buying of homeopathy will go down. So that's what's happening now. So uh, that's good news. And by the way, over the last two years, the share price value of Boiron has gone down by 50%. Oh, couldn't happen to a nicer company, I think. (laughs) That's really good. We should celebrate that. Yeah. But
0: that doesn't mean that the work is done.
2: No, homeopathy is still there. It's still very popular uh, in, in Germany. Annika, we're just still waiting for you to, to pick up the phone and tell Jens Spahn that he should really pull the plug on homeopathy. He hasn't done that yet. He's talked about it a little bit a couple of years ago, but then he got cold feet, I think.
1: Yeah, he should definitely do something about that. And when he's at it, he can then also... Allow donating blood for homosexuals. That would be also very nice. So
2: right, mm-hmm. yeah,
1: Jens Spahn you you've got your work cut out for you.
2: Yeah, and and I understand he is openly living in a same-sex relationship, so he sh- he should really understand these things. I yeah. would say, yeah,
1: definitely.
0: Mm. Yeah. How long has he been the health minister?
2: Uh, I think we we've heard... been talking about him a,
0: for for a couple of years. I think. Uh, yeah, so. uh, several
1: several years. Yes, three
2: four years at
0: least. I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he, he's he been busy. Uh, we couldn't get around to it. <laughs> uh, I don't know.
1: Talking about being busy, German courts are actually pretty busy right now. Um, there's a, another healing practitioner in front of the court. Ein, Ein, Ein Heilpraktiker, Germany. is that? Ein Heilpraktiker, yes. Yeah,
2: okay. Ein Heilpraktiker.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> They had to pay compensation for giving alternative medicine to a dying cancer patient. And the problem here was that the court also gave the patient some, who was already dead, I should add, some shared responsibility because she willingly stopped her um, evidence-based treatment. So she did that voluntarily. She wasn't forced to do that. and. Well.
0: Yeah, but who on who, yeah, whose advice, right? Yes, right. Yes, you're exactly. blaming
2: the, you're blaming the patient.
1: Yeah, they're blaming partly, partly blaming the patient. Jesus. And this shows how important it is to inform people, right? Like to mm-hmm. to inform about the risks of alternative medicine and about the about the effectiveness of evidence based medicine. There's also another practitioner involved in a legal case because of assumed fraud. And here you can also see the Heilpraktiker, the healing practitioners, always claim that these are individual cases, like isolated incidents, and that there's worse abuse in some hospitals, in evidence-based medicine, and so on. So that's what not only Heilpraktiker claim, but also a lot of the, gen- in the general public. So it's, it's still a long way to go in Germany to change something about mm. the never-ending rights <laughs> of um healing practitioners. Yeah, I'm I'm glad they're finally in court for what they're doing, but it's still a long way to go.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. It never ceases to amaze me how quick some people are to give advice to people that affects their lives. You should be able to recognize your level of responsibility and what what responsibilities you're ready to take, right? This is why I really I really like every single, uh, single time you say, Pontus, that you should not get health advice from a podcast. <laughs> that is basically correct. There are professionals who can give you health advi- advice, but but some people uh, mistake these health professionals to those quacks, and that can be deadly.
1: Yeah, yes. As- quite literally in the case of this woman. Right, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so this is why tackling misinformation is absolutely crucial. And there are fact-checkers who do that on a regular basis for Facebook, for other social media. But there is this um, Spanish organization called Verificat. And they seem to have launched a new portal. I mean, not, not the one that we see on science fiction movies, but <laughs> like a website that is about verifying information related specifically to SARS-CoV-2 and the pandemic itself, vaccines against, the COVID ni- against COVID-19 and all other different kinds of health issues. Well, whenever they come across some kind of a, a circulating rumour or denial uh, that circulates on social media, they do something about it. And they teamed up with the Institute of Global Health of Barcelona, so this is all happening. And why it's important as well is because it's happening in Catalonia, but also the language that they provide it with is the Catalan as well, which is not a rare thing to come across, but still, I mean, to have these kinds of um, services available in Catalan as well as Spanish. What is it? What is a Castellan?
2: Castellano? I don't know Castellano. what it's called in yeah, English. Yeah.
0: But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, anyone listening from Spain, please uh, <laughs> straighten <laughs> us up about that. We don't want to talk rubbish about these issues because we know those are delicate issues <laughs> in uh, Spain. So uh, it's all happening within the within a framework that is uh, funded by Google News, the Google News Initiative, and uh, coordinated by another organization called Aleteia. Verificat also provides service through uh, WhatsApp number 666908353. So people can ask their questions on both languages and they will get links to infographics and uh, all the verified information that is available. So this is a great initiative and it's happening in Spanish, Castellan and Catalan as well. You can go check out Verificat as well. Among our show notes, you
2: can find the link. Mm. All right, on to another hot topic then. Siberia is in the global climate change news again, just like during 2019 and 2020, during the wildfires, we talked about that. And as we know, some people still refuse to accept the idea of uh, global climate change, although the heat records and the natural disasters continue to pile up. But thanks to science, we can measure the changes now better than ever. This latest information came to us courtesy of the European Copernicus Programme, which we have mm-hmm. mentioned before. The Copernicus Programme has so far launched seven Sentinel satellites, if my counting is correct. And it's not fully deployed yet. Then And then there's also plans for... Even more to come with Copernicus uh, 2.0 in the future. So, but the Sentinel satellites 3A and 3B produced a detailed snapshot of the surface heat of Siberia on the 20th of June. And it was hot. Temperatures up to 48 degrees Celsius were detected. And uh, it was pretty much over 30 degrees all over the area. But 48 degrees. This is not good news, folks. It's, it's This is above the, the Arctic Circle. And it's just crazy to me. And in addition to the great wildfires that we saw in the past couple of years, and which we can expect now too, I guess. But in addition to that, these temperatures contribute to the thawing of the tundra and the permafrost, which contains among other things lots of methane, which ironically is also a, a big greenhouse gas. So there's a big feedback loop or runaway effect here where the global warming leads to even more global warming. And uh, but I, I'm happy that the Copernicus program is is delivering results. I'm just a bit scared of the results yeah. as we get them. <laughs>
1: So if we would be if we would be someone who's like denying facts we would be like yeah Copernicus is not working <laughs> sorry guys right
2: <laughs> or they're just making the numbers up because yes. they want funding for more satellites
1: yeah we don't like the yeah. results so sorry not working
0: yeah 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 but uh, you can also claim that um, it's all a conspiracy because there is a controlled outcome of the de- of the results and the details and all that. and and y- you probably don't like that. But this, yeah, there is there is a problem that is much more serious than how I try to interpret this here because it's conspiracy theories and how they keep keep spreading. And if you want to tackle the spreading of conspiracy theories, you have to be able to, communicate with people about it you have to be able to approach people and try to to find out why they believe them what is it that motivates them and how you can help them get out of that vicious circle of reasoning for terrible things so i'm pretty sure we all love and admire the work that the guys at sense about science do so they did yet another amazing thing and that was part of a project with the University of Manchester and um, it was led by uh, Peter Knight and um, it was funded by the United Kingdom Research and Innovation Fund. The work itself entailed a lot of workshops that had a lot of people in them as uh, a working group who were actual actual believers of conspiracy theories and also others who have had difficult conversations with those believers trying to persuade them not to follow those kinds of ideas. And the outcome is a document that is called Talking About COVID Conspiracy. And they managed to put together a list of different points where what you have to try to work out with the people you want to persuade. And the first point is You have to find out what people actually believe. And that that is a big problem that we usually come across because we are very quick at assuming what the other person believes and why they believe it. But to be honest, and this is the the right skeptical approach, we have no freaking idea. We have to start with understanding all that. We have to be modest in what we might be able to achieve by engaging in conversations with conspiracy believers And that is the second point. The third one is you have to recognize that those people who are conspiracy theorists, they have almost the same needs and frustrations that everyone else does. They just come to a different conclusion. And you have to understand why and how that happens. Once you've established all that, you are ready to move to the next phase where you can basically explain the difference between conspiracy theories and actual conspiracies. That's very important, because without acknowledging that there are actual conspiracies, you will not be taken seriously, right? We've seen that happen like a million times. If you try to deny that, you will lose all your credibility. And you have to encourage equal scepticism, which means that you apply your scepticism to everything that you say, including the arguments that you try to use in a conversation like this this is a very good list of things to to take into account when talking about conspiracy theories and i think it's something that it's it's available on sense about sciences uh, website we will of course share the link on our show notes but as usual you know this is this is my thing i call for translations of stuff
1: (laughs) yeah i was thinking (laughs) about that yes very good
0: I do encourage people to get in touch with Sense About Science and offer your services or help with translations because this is something that you will find very useful in your everyday conversations, the likes of which are many these days because you have to engage in those conversations. And if you want to uh, contact uh, Sense About Science, I recommend you contact Hannah Lacey, Who's the new senior communications officer at Sense About Science? By the way, congratulations. So yes, that's what's happening at uh, Sense About Science. These guys are always busy with something, cooking something really exciting.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> of <Not laughs> awesome. Work.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was when I was in the UK, I was living in the UK. That was like my dream job, working for Sense About Science. But uh, soon <laughs> I had to realize that it's never gonna be available for. The likes of me, never mind. We do our old thing, but that's uh, that's all the news that we had to share with our listeners. So that means that we are coming to the end of the show. But before we go, obviously we need a quote, and the quote this time comes from French philosopher from the 18th century, Denis Diderot. Diderot. I don't know if I did a terrible job at pronouncing it. You can let us know to your listeners. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Info at the
0: Yeah, let those emails pour in. And uh, the quote is, Skepticism is the first step towards truth. It must be applied generally because it is the touchstone.
1: Hmm. That's short and sweet. <laughs> short and sweet.
0: <laughs> And with that, we are really coming to the end of the show. So thank you very much, Annika and Pontus, for joining me this week.
1: Thank you. Thanks (laughs) a lot.
0: Many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye.
2: Tschüss. Hello.
0: Wisslaat.
2: Annika's a bit busy, I think. Yeah,
1: sorry. I'll start busy, in a bit. Busy, yeah, no, busy. no worries. Take your
2: time. Take your time. <laughs> I'm editing this week. Sorry about that, Pontus. No worries. I'll just cut everything you say out. Oh, in the meantime. Quick- in the meantime. Let <laughs> I- what did you say? What did you say, Pontus? Sorry, I missed it. <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> Since 1919. No. <laughs> I'm on old fart. Since 2019, (laughs) the share price... Sorry. uh, It is funny. Anyway...